Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Millions of babies were born during the pandemic's first two years. We know in 2020, especially life in a pandemic meant parents stayed isolated, away from their extended family, and from settings like early childhood centers, and missed other social interactions like playdates. How are these toddlers faring today? Coming up where we live, we talk about that with a Connecticut pediatrician, and we hear from a researcher who studied infants born between March and December of 2020 to review their differences in neurodevelopment compared with babies born before the pandemic. Now, did you have a pandemic baby? What was your experience, and how is your child doing today? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Sarah Laskow, who's a senior editor at The Atlantic. She wrote about what it was like to have her first child uh, in the beginning days of that pandemic. Sarah, welcome to our show. Hi. So uh, tell us about uh, that time. It must have been scary. You know, here in Connecticut, we remember what that was like those first days, the first wave hitting New York City and Connecticut. And so what was going through your mind? Because as your due date was approaching, this worldwide pandemic was also evolving. Right. Well, (laughs) I was very pregnant. Um, I'm a science editor, so I was spending all of my time really editing articles about um, this like increasingly scary situation. Um, And I think I started just hoping actually that the baby would come early um, because every day things were looking worse and worse. and so uh, she actually did come two weeks early, um, which now that I think about it was really lucky because, you know, as we know, the um, COVID cases grow exponentially. And so the difference of just the danger of being in the hospital um, two weeks later would have been that much greater. And, you know, this was a time like when we drove to the hospital. I, I live in New York City and um, I went into labor on a Saturday night um, and the roads were empty. You know, there were signs flashing everywhere, like stay home. Um, so it was a pretty apocalyptic scenario. And at the hospital, everyone was very nervous. I mean, no one really knew exactly what was going on. Um, the do- The doctor's and staff all had masks, but this was at a time when there weren't enough masks to go around. So I wasn't wearing a mask. Um, my husband wasn't wearing a mask. And, you know, really the the whole time we were there, the sense we got from everyone around us was, you know, you want to be here as little time as you need to be. So like, you know, get the baby out, make sure that she's doing well, make sure you're doing well, and then go home and stay there. How many hours were you in the hospital for her birth? Um, 
I, I, I think basically two and a half days, you know, I, I was in labor for 24 hours and then we were there, I think 36 hours after that. Um, so a, a pretty short hospital stay. Um, and we, and we were lucky that, you know, every, everything went well and everyone was healthy afterwards. I mentioned this was your first child, so there's a lot of of expectations uh, for couples uh, when their their baby uh, will be born soon. And there's this uh, you plan, you put a lot of planning into uh, that moment. And again, uh, COVID, all the anxieties uh, surrounding this pandemic, uh, you know, added to or maybe changed, you know, what in your mind was going to be uh, your your daughter's birth story. And so now you're home. How did that, um, the fact this pandemic, again, was on, um, evolving, how did that change your plans uh, to have maybe your family over to see your baby or who was there to provide you support? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, we were alone, which I think is different than what we were expecting. You know, I think even today we think about like, how nice it would have been to have even just like a few friends over more of our family um, to just be able to like hold our baby or, or spend time with us in those like early, um, very tender days. Um, we, we were lucky in that my mom lives very close by and she um, was in our pod, you know, from the beginning. And so we weren't entirely alone, but you know, like it, having a baby, I think it's, I understand is always very isolating. You know, you're, you're in this little world with this newborn who needs like constant attention. Um, and so in some ways, like it was nice, I guess, in that like everything social that was happening was happening on zoom. So we still had that connection with people, but, um, you know, we, we really were mostly by ourselves for, for a very long time. Mm -hmm. You can join our conversation as we talk about pandemic babies and how these toddlers are doing today. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before I take a call, you'd mentioned that you were a science editor, are a science editor at The Atlantic. Did you feel like you were able to enjoy your time with your baby, that you could disconnect and say, you know, my colleagues have this, I've got to focus on my family now, considering this pandemic? Um, I think that I called into work more than I would have otherwise, you know, um, we were having like all staff meetings every week. And so I, I, I definitely was paying more attention to work than um, I was planning on. But at the same, I mean, I, I work with incredible journalists and, and I did feel like, you know, my colleagues have this, like I, I didn't feel like I needed to be reporting or editing or anything like that. I just wanted like everybody to like know what was going on and understand what was going on. And so you know, I, it, our Slack was and still is like a really great resource of just really smart people trying to figure that out. So, you know, I, I didn't unplug as much as I might have otherwise. You're hearing Sarah Laskow here on Where We Live, senior editor at The Atlantic. John's calling in from Bloomfield. John, what was your family's experience with pandemic babies? Well, um, my son was, my firstborn son was born on March 26th. And, um, we got to the hospital and the rules were literally changing by the hour um, while we were at the hospital. Um, we weren't sure if we, I was going to be able to be in the delivery room, but I, I, I was able to, all right, you know, we'll bring you your food. Okay. Well, maybe you can go to the, you can go to the cafeteria, but don't leave the building. 
Um, you know, there was just, it was, it was scary. It was a really scary experience, uh, in the hospital. But once we got home, um, you know, it was, it, it was isolating. Um, the, the, uh, woman that was speaking previously expressed it almost exactly verbatim what, what I, what my wife and I experienced where we just were constantly trying to be in contact with our friends and our family, you know, looking through the door so they could see the baby. Um, and it was, it was tough, but you know, we got through it. Um, and, and I have to say my son is pretty resilient. Uh, one of the comments that I heard multiple, multiple times was, Oh, he's afraid because everybody has masks on and couldn't have been further from the truth. It was just, that's what he knew. So it was completely normal. He didn't get, he didn't care at all. Um, about masks, um, with people having masks on. So the kids are resilient, um, and he's doing really well now. Well, that's good to hear. Thank you, John, for sharing uh, your family story with us. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sarah, I'm wondering if you could respond, because there was a, a part in your article for The Atlantic where you even talk about some of the pandemic's weird realities, of course, with people wearing masks, um, even if you're isolated. All these family pictures in that first year where the mask is, uh, you know, featured in these pictures and how your daughter responded. How did you see her respond? Yeah, I mean, I think um, similarly, I don't think that she was freaked out or anything by masks. And I, I remember, you know, probably around the time she was getting object permanence, she un understood that there were people's mouths behind the mask. And she just found that like endlessly funny and fascinating, like, oh my God, like there's a mouth there. Like everyone who's wearing a mask has a mouth. Um, but it never like freaked her out or anything. I mean, it is just like, has been a fact of her life. Um, you know, she's speaking now and, and one of probably the first 50 words she said was masks, but it's also like, you know, she's just very interested in clothes. She also talks about like boots and pants and coats and hats. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is like, to us, it's very strange. You know, we look at these pictures of, of our first year of, of her life and, you know, we're wearing masks in scenarios that like now we wouldn't even wear them, you know, because we just were so unsure about what was the right thing to do. So, you know, even when we were like nowhere near anybody else, out, you know, if we were outside the house, we would be wearing masks. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it is like, you know, like, they are strange. It's a strange time to think about. And I, I think like, I anticipate that she'll have questions about it one day, you know, like, what, what was the deal with this? What were you guys doing? Mm -hmm. And when you think about you'd mentioned feeling, you know, oftentimes that new parents are isolated in those first few days and months. But when we think about the support that you got, uh, sometimes, uh, even going out to talk with other new moms uh, with their babies, you know, again, not being able to make, you know, t to have those interactions, Sarah, how do you think that impacted you? Yeah, I think that is one thing we definitely missed out on. You know, I, I was just at a, a birthday party for a friend and one of the guests there was someone who was in her new mom's group when she had her first baby. And so, yeah, like, I, I think we were just, like, we didn't have 
we we're lucky in that we have like lots of great friends and and community um you know where we live but we don't really have a community of like parents who ha have like exact pure babies um because all of those sorts of things just weren't really on the table when when um, our daughter was born when you wrote that article for the atlantic did you hear from a lot of readers sarah yeah i did i mean i i i think people you know like the person who called in um anyone who went through this experience like has it kind of just like seared in their memory like of course it's like having a baby is a big life event no matter when it happens and like to have a baby at the beginning of the pandemic when so much was uncertain i think was just like uh, you know hard like hard to process almost and and you know you you think about a lot like what was that experience and um, of course, like, I think we all like sometimes think about like, what was our beginning of the pandemic story? And um, like, this one is just one that, you know, you'll, if it's your kid, you'll be telling forever, because that's, that's the story of their life. That's the beginning of their life. We'd love to hear from you too about your pandemic baby story, how your child or children are doing today in the first uh, two years of this pandemic. Again, our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Danielle is calling in from Coventry. Hi, Danielle. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. So tell us what was your experience? Yeah, so um, I had... Um, identical twins in June of 2020. Um, and so um, kind of in the thick of it there. Um, and I also had or have a 15 month old at home at the time. And so um, my hospital experience is so I required a C-section. Um, at that time, luckily, uh, my husband was allowed to join me. Um, and um, but um, obviously, I wasn't able to um, bring my daughter in, my uh, my older daughter. And then um, beyond that, um, the twins were quite small um, when they were born, so they required um, a week-long stay afterwards. And so I wasn't able to uh, leave and come back, so um, I wasn't I wasn't really anticipating a whole week long stay. Um, so I wasn't able to see, oh, sorry. Wasn't able to see my daughter um, for a full week. I'm sorry to hear that, Danielle. Yeah, that was really hard. And how are your children doing today? Um, sorry. sorry, I get so emotional. Um, they're, doing, they're doing really, really well. I think one of the toughest things though is just, um, so my husband's family is out of state, and um, my family's from Canada, Calgary, Alberta. Um, and so we aren't able to get together. Um, I wasn't, yeah. sorry, I wasn't expecting to be this emotional. Um, yeah, and so it's just been really tough getting um, the grandparents together and the kids, um, to see the kids grow up. Um, it's already tough when when um, people live so far away, but um, just the extra you know, restrictions have been really tough. 
Yeah, I can understand why this is making you emotional. We think about how isolation impacts people, especially when you have uh, young ones and you want to share, um, you want to be there uh, for these life moments, but also share them with your family. And so I think it's important to let people know that um, families that had pandemic babies were going through this. And Danielle, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story with us. Uh, Sarah Laskow, did you want to respond to what Danielle shared with us? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with what she's saying that like one of the hardest things about going through this experience is just like the ways it affects how like who you're able to share your children with and um just like the restrictions that are put on you in general, you know, like my um you know, my my daughter has um one aunt and uncle on my side and one aunt and uncle on my husband's side and she's really only met her aunt and uncle on my husband's side once because they were living abroad when the pandemic started and they have their own young child so it's just been really really hard to spend family time together and so you know it's um when I think about the things that make me the most sad it's really that like that you know these kids like are and and these like important people in our lives like only like have these sort of glancing um, moments with with my daughter and she's getting so much bigger so fast, you know, and it's like, these aren't moments that you can get back. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it's a very melancholy aspect of this um, that just you, all, all the parts of your life that you were hoping to share with the people who are closest to you, like you just don't get to sometimes. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about some of the milestones with a, a first child, even you know taking them for their first haircut, and how maybe uh, parents and had to delay doing that, depending on what the cases were like in their community. Uh, what challenges uh, did you encounter, Sarah? Yeah, so uh, we had that exact experience. You know, my daughter's hair was getting very long um, during the Omicron surge, so but we, we waited to take her um, to get her first haircut um, until we felt a little bit more comfortable with that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just um, medical things I think have been very challenging. Like she, she had some um, um, extra tests that she needed at the very beginning of the pandemic and like having to take this tiny, tiny baby to the hospital, like during the first COVID surge, like was so scary and, um you know like she my my daughter goes to daycare um we we didn't um we were able to like delay putting her in because my mom was helping taking care of her but like at a certain point we were like well we really want her to be around other kids so we put her in daycare but there's you know there's a lot of other things that I think we would have done with her that we just haven't really gotten a chance to do like um especially like um, seeing family members and things like that, you know, that there are, there's whole parts of our family who just haven't even met her yet. So. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah, why, why did you want to write about this part of your life? Do you feel like uh, in this uh, move by society uh, to want to move on and to forget about some of the the trauma and uh, as you mentioned, the melancholy of the last two years that that we that we uh, want to forget about these experiences, but it's important to acknowledge them too. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Um, I think also like you know the the pandemic has been so 
hard for so many parents. Um, you know, like in some ways I think that like, um, the experience, like, I, I can't even imagine like what it would have been like to have a kid who's my daughter's age now when the pandemic started, you know, like a, a, ba- a baby needs a lot of attention, but they're also just, you know, they sleep and eat and cry and that's it. Um, a toddler has like needs the, the world and um, needs people and to be isolated with a toddler, you know, have a small child and then um, be like having like new babies on top of that. Like, I think that like the, so many people have had so much to carry just in terms of like trying to get through their normal life. Um, and I think that's a really important part of the story. Um, but I, I, I think like in some ways my experience has been that there's another side to that, which is just like, you know, having a, a small kid who's growing up in this time, like just gives you like a very clear sense of how much time has passed. And and that was what I was hoping to capture in the story. Just the idea that like, you know, sometimes we talk about like the, the pandemic time is a blur, or, like it's, you know, it's still March, 2020, but like the whole time, like it's felt like very clear to me how the time has passed, has been passing because I, I live with this small person who's changing all the time and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it's, it's just very clear to me how, how exactly how long this has been going on. Well, Sarah Laska, we appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Thank you for writing that story for The Atlantic. Sarah is senior editor at The Atlantic. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, a local pediatrician from Connecticut Children's joins us as we continue talking about pandemic babies. We'll also hear from a researcher that studied infants born between March and December of 2020. What differences did researchers find in the baby's gross and fine motor skills compared to infants born before the pandemic? We'll find out after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're focusing on how the last two years have impacted pandemic babies and what pediatricians are seeing today. Did you have a pandemic baby? Kathleen on Twitter shares, we adopted a newborn in August of 2020, and we're grateful to have had the extra time together at home because of work from home. But sad, our niece never got to hold him as a baby, and we haven't been able to spend time with lots of -of out-of-town family. What's been your experience? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Caleb Wasser, who's a primary care physician at Connecticut Children's. Caleb, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. We heard from our previous guests and callers that it was, of course, a a, a difficult time uh, during the pandemic, especially for new parents. Uh, But I'm wondering what you observed in your um, doctor's office when you were able to see uh, uh, families in person. I'm wondering if you could share some of that with us. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, you have some very insightful callers and guests. I think they hit a lot of it right on the head. A lot of the concern, the delay in care that I'm sure many people, you know, were aware of with the lead child immunizations, as was alluded to by others, was a fear, a fear of coming into hospitals, of coming into the office. You know, this is where people are sick. This is where COVID lives. I don't want to expose my young children to something like that. Because of it, we really saw a, like I said, a, a significant delay in seeking appropriate or even routine care for their children. And when uh, children are, when babies are first born, there, there are a lot of what they call well visits uh, in the doctor's office. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, what those um, experiences were like uh, with uh, parents, especially new parents, and, and what you're noticing with children as they're now, you know, one and two years old. Uh, I think at the beginning, there was a lot of, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of unknown, a lot of questions, especially not knowing the effects COVID might have on younger children. Um, so over time, it you know it required a lot of sort of easing parents' concerns and waiting to sort of get more data, get more of an idea of what you know health risks this might pose and how we can best protect these young children. Over time, we've gotten a much better sense of that, and we have greater measures in place, and I think kids are generally doing well, for the most part, uh, from a health standpoint. And now, as we're coming up on, you know, two years in, we're now starting to catch up on routine visits, childhood immunizations, ensuring we're uh, monitoring developmental milestones. And the other piece that I think has been really significant over the last few months is the implementation of any services that might be needed. If, for instance, one of the more common um, delays you'll encounter is, you know, an expressive language delay, the difficulty in getting the words out. And uh, for majority of the pandemic, a lot of the services, you know, that often were offered in the home, things like first to three and early intervention programs were switched to Zoom as we are today and much of our life has become and we really saw that that was not as effective a mode of therapy for a lot of these families and while children were progressing not at the um, speed we would have hoped they would so now here we are at a point where we are back to doing more in-home 
services, we are providing uh, direct care, or I should say, you know, the programs are dividing direct care, and we're seeing a significant benefit from it. When you talk about development, can you um, maybe be more specific for our listeners, uh, maybe for those who, who don't have children, when we think about, um, you know, what uh, how babies should be responding or what they should be doing at like two months and six months and eight months? Well, so we have a set of what we call developmental milestones that we monitor at each well-child visit. Children are seen at the newborn period and then um, at sort of set standardized uh, intervals, one month, two months, four months, six months, nine months, several times over the first year and even two years of life. At every time we're monitoring language development from the early stages of even just cooing and, and recognizing voice in a you know simple back and forth and imitation of sounds at young ages to, you know, as Sarah had alluded to her young toddler now talking and eventually actually developing words and phrases and putting together sentences as they near, you know, closer to two, three years old. Um, you know, that's language. We also look, you know, we monitor their fine motor skills, um, you know, in terms of as they get older ability to sort of feed on themselves and grab different objects, transferring objects. We look at their overall motor development um, as they go from sort of not even able to hold up their head to holding up that big head of theirs to then sitting on their own and pulling up and standing and eventually walking and running and climbing all over our house. Um, and then finally, you know, sort of a social, emotional um, developmental stage that I think had a, you know, a significant impact in that part of where that social sort of emotional development comes from is that interaction, that interaction with others, which certainly was there with their parents and caregivers but like was alluded to by many others, there was a lot of isolation over the last two years. And that interaction with peers, interaction with other family members wasn't there, hasn't been there to the same extent. So over time now we're seeing, you know, children are very resilient, but I think there was a time where that isolation may have uh, impacted their sort of ability to interact well at that social sort of emotional, because they hadn't had that experience. Um, a little overwhelmed, maybe more tantrums than we would have expected, crying, looking to parents more and more difficulties with separation anxiety. Um, but now here we are, and fortunately we're getting through and children are now, you know, entering back in more into daycare and into schooling and family members are seeing each other and that social aspect of life is coming back for all of us. We're seeing, you know, a very positive effect that that's having on children as well. You're hearing Dr. Caleb Wasser here on Where We Live, a primary care physician at Connecticut Children's, as we talk about pandemic babies and their development over the last two years. Uh, my next guest co-authored a study published in the JAMA Pediatrics looking at developmental differences between pandemic babies and infants born before 2020. On Zoom with us, Dr. Lauren Shuffrey, who's Associate Research Scientist at Columbia University Medical Center. Lauren, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us more about your study and what you were looking at specifically related to infants born between March and December of 2020. Definitely. So we started um, an initiative at Columbia called the COVID-19 Mother Babies Outcome Study. And this is co-led by Dr. Danny Dimitrio, who's a pediatrician, and Dr. Catherine Monk, who is a clinical psychologist 
It really specializes in the perinatal period and working with mothers. So when this study initially launched, we were actually interested in looking at the effects of prenatal maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection on infant development. And we were interested in this because we know that infection during pregnancy from other studies has been associated with increased risk of um, adverse developmental outcomes. So things like global developmental delay or specific neurodevelopmental disorders. So what we did um, was compared babies who in utero were exposed to maternal COVID versus those who were not um, on a developmental screening tool at six months of age. And this screening tool is called the Ages and Stages Questionnaire. And um, Caleb has probably used this in his own practice. It's really commonly used by pediatricians. And it essentially is just a parental report measure where parents can answer questions about their children's own development in a few different domains. So we're assessing things like communication, gross and fine motor skills, problem solving, and personal social ability. So some example questions for this for communication would be, does your baby make sounds like da, ga, ka, ba? Um, does your baby make high-pitched squeals? Does your baby make grunting sounds? And parents can fill this out in about 10 minutes. And for each question, they can indicate if a skill is present. So if the baby does make high-pitched squeals, they would indicate yes. And then we also try to understand if a skill is emerging, um, where they would indicate sometimes or not present yet. So when and we Lauren, compare- and Lauren, could you summarize um, some of the findings uh, just in the interest yeah. of time? <laughs> Um, so what happened was when we compared babies born during the, uh, the pandemic to those um, before the pandemic, that's where we actually saw differences. So we didn't see differences in babies who were exposed to COVID during pregnancy, but instead we found that babies born during the pandemic um, had slightly lower scores on gross motor, fine motor, and personal social development. Okay, that's interesting. And so when we think about um, the findings, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, also some of the factors, uh, you know, related to that. Yeah, so within this particular study, we weren't able to look at factors like prenatal maternal stress or depression or anxiety or social isolation. It really was just a group comparison between babies who were born during the pandemic to babies who were born prior to the onset of the pandemic. Um, But based on our findings, where we saw babies who were in utero um, during the first trimester, uh, were during the peak of the pandemic, had the greatest differences compared to the historical control cohort, um, we think that these findings might be related to increased levels of maternal stress. Okay. And so when we think about these early findings, you know, the need for long-term monitoring of these children born during the pandemic, Lauren? Exactly. So this was a really early time point. These kids were only six months old um, at this particular assessment included in the the JAMA pediatric study, but it will be very important to continue to follow these kids um, to understand how they're developing, um, you know, as kids are hitting two now. My own pandemic baby just turned two on Sunday. 
Oh, that's interesting to, to hear, uh, again, your perspective as a researcher, but you're also living this, uh, Lauren. Uh, Caleb is still here from Connecticut Children's. I wonder if you can respond uh, to Lauren, her colleagues' uh, findings, and, and how you see um, some of that playing out and when we think about even parental stress and having to manage a lot while also, you know, having an infant at home, Caleb. Absolutely. I I am very, I find it very interesting that, and now I understand we're looking at a younger age, but mo- many of us were all, you know, focused on the effects the masks have. Children couldn't see faces. How would they learn to talk and reciprocate with their um, language? And certainly I'm under, I is makes sense to me and it seems fitting that you would see some delays in sort of the social emotional but to see that it was in gross and fine motor is interesting and it makes you wonder like you sort of alluded to was it more of a prenatal um, exposure whether it's to stress hormone infection itself likely more hormonal that was causing this and over time as these children get older and um, other milestones become more greater depth to them, such as their language development, uh, what effect that you may see as they get older. So I find that fascinating. I'm excited to see what future sort of updates you guys will have on that. When you think about these findings and also what you're observing uh, with your patients, uh, Caleb, you know, have screenings changed uh, that, you know, talk uh, or figure out like what's going on in the home, you know, the stress that, you know, caregivers have and how that impacts uh, the child and ways to help? I don't think they've changed, but I think it's become more apparent. We're all very aware that there's a high level of anxiety. There always is a high level of anxiety in any, um, with any newborn and certainly uh, first time parents, first time small families like that and lots of questions, lots of concerns and add on, you know, overall global health risks and isolation where that anxiety only increases that sort of um, isolation just allows you to um, wander more, you know, consider more and worry more, um, these things become even more uh, impactful on your life. And I think the stress and the anxiety levels in new parents was quite high rates of things, you know, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety were very significant. And, you know, as we talked touched on earlier, that fear, I think, really drove people not to seek support for those concerns. Um, for quite some time, which was almost as, if not more, concerning. Mm. Uh, Dr. Lauren Sheffer, I wanted to go back to you uh, before we head to the break. Uh, uh, these findings are interesting. Again, they are early findings. And, you know, what's your focus uh, today as, as the pandemic continues and as these children age? Yeah, so we're continuing to follow this cohort. Um, the oldest kids are now about two years of age. And we are assessing them through telehealth. So um, it's been really hard to bring kids in due to all the different waves of the pandemic. So we are assessing language and other different domains through telehealth um, in a more standardized observational way. So as I mentioned before, um, in this particular study at six months, we assess children through parental report. So I think it will be really important to objectively um, have psychologists and other developmental experts assess 
children um, through their own lens. And yeah, we're going to continue following this cohort as they get older. Um, We really think that at six months, there's a lot more variability in things like motor development. And since babies aren't talking yet at six months, they're really just starting to make sounds and noises. Um, It may be that as children get older, these other domains um, will become more important to understand. That's Dr. Lauren Sheffrey, Associate Research Scientist at Columbia University Medical Center. We'll link uh, to uh, the study that you co-authored at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Lauren, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing about your pandemic baby as well. (laughs) Thank you. Also with us, Dr. Caleb Wasser, primary care physician at Connecticut Children's. Uh, Caleb, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live. Coming up, the number of couples having children was already on the decline before the pandemic. However, the last two years affected family planning. More after a short break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So how has the pandemic impacted family planning? Even before 2020, fertility rates nationwide were at a record low, according to the U.S. Census. People assumed there'd be a baby boom in the pandemic, but the census reported data pointing toward a significant drop in fertility related to the pandemic, at least in those early months, both in the U.S. and globally. And a Pew Research Center survey in November found a rising share of U.S. adults who are Not already parents say they're unlikely to ever have children, and their reasons vary. Joining us now on Zoom is Claudia Geist, who's Associate Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at the University of Utah. Claudia, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We're interested in your research and and how uh, you're seeing attitudes towards pregnancy and, you know, forming families changing during this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what we did is we had an ongoing cohort study where we followed people starting in 2015, 2016, to just see how attitudes towards pregnancy and people's contraceptive behavior and plans for family formation changed over time. And when the pandemic happened, we took the opportunity to follow up with a small sample to just see and check in how people were doing. And for many people, this was a scary time and, um, in line with the national and international findings, people really felt like this was not a great time to have children for many of them. They really did never want to have children and attitudes, especially the idea of getting pregnant um, anytime soon was just very, it seemed very negatively. Mm. And then I mentioned, you know, in the early months of the pandemic, uh, that anxiety was high. There was a lot of, that was unknown. And then as uh, the months kept going, we were in, uh, you know, 2021, you know, how has the data changed in terms of, you know, are some of these um, births uh, now rising? Yeah, it's still a little early to see how much um, the, you know, the the springing back of um, fertility is really happening because in a sense, Um, 
though the days are not as dark as they were in the early pandemic, there is still a lot of uncertainty going on. And what we have seen over the course of this entire pandemic is that um, parents are not very well supported. Oftentimes, um, schools and daycares were the first to close down, the last to open back up. And that has sent a signal that Parents oftentimes are on their own, and especially people who cannot work remotely, it for them it's been really difficult to combine parenthood and working for pay outside of the home. And I think that may take a while for people to just get back from that because it's been a stark reminder of how difficult it is to be a parent and it has made parenthood a little less attractive. Mm-hmm. When you talk about uh, this cohort, can you tell us more in terms of uh, their demographic? And did you find that it was, you know, younger people, uh, Gen Z or millennials who are less likely to want to start a family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had a relatively young sample, you know, many people in their mid-20s when they when they um, joined our study. And this was a, I would say, a rather you know, like not a well-educated um, cohort, you know, just sort of um, middle of the road, but they were smart in the sense that we recruited them at family planning centers when they initially sought contraception. So these are people who knew how to access health care, even though many of them did not initially have insurance through our study that had access to contraception in 2015. And so we started out with people who had very you know, clear plans and wanted to do family planning. But what we found is that even when we take into account people's age, um, their economic circumstances, the early pandemic really put a damper on things where when we ask people how they would feel about becoming pregnant in the next month or so, um, that that really was... Um, you know, people really said that that was a very bad thing that um, would happen. And especially the proportion of people who never wanted to have a pregnancy really rose um, to unprecedented levels. And this is a sample where people were not super eager to have children, but this is a study um, out of a context that is particularly, you know, family friendly and Utah fertility rates are still high. There's more social pressure to have um, children earlier compared to the rest of the country. And we also found that people were concerned about accessing health care, especially in the early pandemic. Some of the pregnancy checkups you cannot easily do um, through a Zoom doctor's visit. Right. We heard that earlier from uh, the doctor that joined. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about uh, just panning out, because, you know, so much of our lives, right, has been focused on the pandemic in the last two years, and it feels much longer. But when you can, when you compare this to other turbulent times in history, you know, is this um, expected that you see a dip in, um, you know, fertility and family planning? Because with uncertainty, people don't maybe want to, to to bring it a life into this world when there's so much unknown. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this uh, really lines up pretty well from what we know from the, um, you know, the Spanish flu. There is some evidence about, you know, dip in fertility 
um, during the Spanish flu, but also, you know, big upheaval events like times of war or even like positive big um, upheavals like the German reunification of East and West Germany in the early 1990s. There was a temporary dip in fertility because people just didn't know what was going on. And the combination of not knowing what's going on and economic, you know, upheaval where especially here in the pandemic, lots of people lost their jobs or things just change. Change often results in people just waiting a little bit longer, taking fewer risks and entering parenthood. You know, it's a big risk, including a financial risk. Right. I mentioned earlier that a lot of people thought that with the pandemic and more people at home, there would be a baby boom. Uh, you know, in your research, uh, again, as we're uh, starting into the third year of the pandemic, is, do you expect there to be a bounce back? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot. And initially, people thought, well, if all those couples are both working from home, who knows what will happen? Maybe there will be a baby boom. But I think, especially initially, people were just too stressed out to um, really think about, um, you know, planning, planning pregnancies. And I do think to some extent there will be a bounce back because people have postponed big life events. And at some point people just don't want to wait anymore. And um, though the pandemic is, you know, sort of ongoing, people may just sort of lose their sensitivity to the scariness of it all. And so a bounce back will happen, but my speculation is that it will not be a rapid bounce back because what we have also seen is that the cost of childcare has risen quite a bit. And the cost of children is something that we can just not ignore. And so people who especially have been successful in planning pregnancies, they may really think twice about whether and when they will have um, a baby or another baby because making sure that there is childcare available, like that can be a really big issue, especially in the cities. Right. All important points. Thank you so much for talking about your research and mm -hmm. the perspectives you bring to this conversation. Claudia Geist, again, Associate Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at the University of Utah. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tess Terrible produced today's show. Kat Pastor is our technical director. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you.